This podcast is a ministry of Crossroads Community Church in Hatfield, Pennsylvania. And now, the message. Well, I've got to admit, uh, for um, Ben and the guys, that was a great worship time, and especially those last two songs. Um, stronger and resurrecting. That was just, like, just lifted us up, didn't it? It was just incredible. So, I feel kind of awkward in light of all that we sang about and all that we affirmed in those songs to tell you that it is my task this morning to suggest that maybe it's all just a hoax. (laughs) That maybe all that stuff about Jesus' life and death and resurrection is just wishful thinking what we think. Well, okay, I hear you. But that's what we need to talk about because uh, we've been talking a little bit about this book, The Case for Christ by Lee Strobel, and a movie that's come out recently this week uh, based on his experiences in just that very area. Because he was an atheist and a skeptic, and he set out to prove, he wanted to write an article for his newspaper to prove that all of this was just rubbish. And the things that Christians were believing was foolish. So we want to take a look at that and just say, what is the evidence? Now, I grew up a little bit differently than um, Pastor Mike. Uh, As he's shared with you before, uh, he came to faith as a teenager as a result of a youth meeting he attended. And he got challenged from the very beginning about his faith uh, and was was asked to really kind of think things through. Uh, That's not how things were for me. I came to faith at about eight and a half years old in Sunday school. My parents took me to church. It was in Bible-believing evangelical church, and I got grounded in the stories of the Bible, Old and New Testament, from my youngest years. It never occurred to me that anybody would challenge it. Uh, So what we want to look at uh, this morning is exploring the evidence for Christ. Now, I grew up in a church where this is one of our mottos. This is what I was taught. Maybe you were too, because we talk. If anybody challenged the Bible, we'd say, "God said it. I believe it. That settles it." Anybody else grew up in that church? I don't, okay, see a bunch of you. So you know what I'm talking about. But as I got to be, um, I guess, in my later years of high school, and then as I got into college, I all of a sudden began to realize that not everybody accepted the Bible as their authority. And others were challenging me about my faith. And I got to admit, outside of knowing the Bible, I hadn't really thought that much about whether the Bible was even defensible. Nobody ever asked me to think about that. So I started to think about it. I also came across another verse that uh, I read in Paul's letters in 1 Corinthians. And that got me thinking, too, about the implications. You've heard this before, I'm sure. Paul says, if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. And we then, Christians, are of all people most to be pitied. How sad would be our situation. So that started me thinking, too, about was there really more um, to this than than just believe it and that's it? So I started challenging, questioning my faith. Now, I wasn't like Lee Strobel. I wasn't trying to argue against what I had learned. I wanted to be assured by some of the evidence that what I had believed was not foolishness. 
Now that got me into an area that I didn't realize till later what it was called, but an area called apologetics. Actually, Pastor Mike mentioned apologetics last week, and I thought it would be helpful if we thought a little bit about what it is. Apologetics, if you've ever been to like Bible college or seminary or something like that, you probably heard this was a course that was offered. I remember my first apologetics course, one of the guys raised his hand and said he wanted to be transferred. He didn't feel that he needed this class. And the teacher asked why. He says, because I don't think I have anything to apologize for. <laughs> I mean, really, he says what he said. He says, I know a lot of people think the Bible is just a... Uh, um, a fairy tale? I don't. I really believe it. I don't want to apologize for it. Other people may not like that I'm a Christian, a follower of Jesus Christ. I'm not going to apologize for that. I want another class. Well, then the teacher explained to him, after we stopped laughing, that the field of apologetics, when we talk about it in religious terms, has these three values. First of all, it helps us to think through what are the proofs that Christianity is rational, that, that it is rational to have faith. Secondly, there's the matter of defense. We want to answer the objections of unbelievers. In fact, those of you that have seen the movie or will be seeing it, in Lee Strobel's journey, he ran into a lot of people just like this. They were people who were answering his objections and his challenges to the faith. And the other one is uh, the offensive appeal of apologetics, is that we look at things that are wrong, wrong thinking in the world, and we can confront it. We can confront the foolishness of sometimes worldly thinking by helping others kind of to see that. So this is the area of apologetics. And I only mention it because that's what Lee Strobel faces when he's up against this. Now, Lee Strobel challenged the story of Jesus, his life, death, and resurrection in three particular areas. So we're going to look at these three areas. First of all, he asked, was Jesus alive at point A? Was there really a Jesus who was alive there? Secondly, at this other point, point B, was he really dead? And then at this other point, point C, further down the line, was he really found to be alive again? So this is the way he kind of thought through it. And in his investigation, these were the three things he worked on. Incidentally, it turns out that Peter, when he gives his wonderful sermon, the first sermon, I guess, of the Christian era on the day of Pentecost, Thousands respond to this message affirmatively to trust Christ. But when, as he's beginning, he makes these three crucial assertions about Jesus Christ. So let me just kind of review it with you. It's found in Acts chapter 2, if you have your Bibles. Men of Israel, he says, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to a cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. So you see, P Peter covered those three areas. Yes, Jesus was really a man and really lived just like you uh, you, you say he didn't leave, but he really did. We know that. We saw him. Secondly, Jesus really did die. We were eyewitnesses of that. And thirdly, Jesus really was raised. So essentially what Lee Strobel was doing was he was attacking these three principal assertions of the Christian faith. Because if Peter's three points are not true, then we're just a club. You, you're a nice club. I, I think... 
Even if it were all a hoax, I might get to come out on Sundays now and then just to spend time with you and drink coffee and hunt for eggs. I mean, that would, it would be great. I mean, it's because you're really great people, most of you. So, <laughs> didn't have anybody particular in mind. But that's all we'd be. We'd be a club. What makes the difference is if Peter's three assertions are true about Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, then we're much more than that. We are a fellowship of followers of the Son of God. So that's what Lee Strobel looks at. So I, I need to, I'm required to go through this with you and, and consider what if Lee Strobel was right? What if this is just a hoax? What if this is just all just wishful thinking? Let's take the first point. Was Jesus really alive at this point A? Peter obviously thinks he was. That's what he says. Men of Israel, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. So he says, look, Jesus didn't make, um, didn't do this in, a, in a, a vacuum or didn't do this behind the scenes or in secret. Whatever he did, he did. He was out there. As I put there on your notes, he makes these three assertions. Jesus lived. He publicly taught and acted. And he made himself known and available to people. And he says, That's, you know that. So any of you that were here, uh, you've been living in, in and around Jerusalem or Judea, you may have met him, you may have heard him, you may have seen him. You can vouch for me just who he is and what his life was like. Now, Strobel attacked that. Um, I remember back in um, the 80s, I guess it was, we learned that there were um, three possibilities for who Jesus was. In light of what he said about himself, who he claimed to be, Somebody famously said either he was a liar, which means he, he knew these things about himself weren't true. He was just trying to pull people together for his own purposes wherever they were. Or he was a lunatic. He was self-deluded, confused, didn't really did think he was the son of God, didn't, couldn't sort out reality from that. Or he was Lord. Anybody remember those three? Liar, lunatic, or Lord? Well, now they've thrown a new one at me. Maybe he was just a legend. That's what some, are, some, some have suggested in recent days, and Strobel addresses this. Maybe he didn't really exist at all, at least not like we know him. Maybe the Bible, maybe the Bible was just made up years later. A group of people got together. They wanted to start a new religion. So they took this guy that somebody remembered, and then they added a lot of other stuff to him made up all the things he said and all the things he did, maybe even borrowed from this demigod from Persia called Mithras. Uh, but there are all kinds of suggestions. Maybe he didn't really live, not the Jesus that we know. So it's important that we look at that and determine, is that really true? Does that have any basis? Well, first of all, there are eyewitnesses. There are personal, first-person accounts of spending time with Jesus. There's Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, the four gospel writers, and there are other people that met him along the way that they claim now. We once thought, or scholars once thought, that the earliest manuscripts we had of the New Testament were centuries after Jesus. So it was a lot of time to make stories up. But then, all of a sudden, in the middle of the 20th century, they started finding all kinds of new manuscripts. Actually, not new, old manuscripts, <laughs> but ones they hadn't ever found before. And all of a sudden, they started realizing, well, this one is from the second century. This one is, this one is very near the year 100, so only a, you know, a 30 or 40 or 50 years from when it was written. And they started finding these old manuscripts, and they said, man, these match pretty nicely with the older ones, and these are just copies. It's possible that then that 
these things were really written down right after they happened. There was no time to make things up or make Jesus a legend. I still remember um, when I was in school, they told me that the P-46 was at the um, University of Pennsylvania uh, Museum. P-46 is a little chunk of Matthew. It's called P because it's one of the papyri. It's a papyrus number 46 that they found, and they cataloged them all. And it, as I recall, it was only like maybe this big, and it was hermetically sealed in a glass container and all that, so you, you couldn't touch it. You just had to look. And I, but I remember being blown away to realize that this baby came from 125, and that was just a copy. So that made people start to think, maybe... This idea they made up stories just doesn't hold water because the actual accounts of Jesus' life are really very near his life. There wasn't time to make it up. Maybe he really was Lord. Some of the little inconsistencies were one of the things that convinced people that the Gospels really were telling the story because they don't always match. Like in the resurrection account, one of the Gospel writers talking about Mary Magdalene coming to the grave. And then another one, Luke, talks about this other Mary, the mother of John, or the mother of James, coming with a woman named Joanna. And they go, well, this doesn't really match. How's that possible? Well, I think it's pretty easy. Uh, Matthew noticed Mary was there, and Luke noticed two others were there. After church on uh, last week on Sunday, Denise and I were just kind of talking, who did you meet today? Did you talk to anybody new? She says, yeah, I met, uh, I met Jill and Luke. And I said, oh, I was talking to Art and Lonnie. Which of us were lying? Neither of us. We just weren't together. We, we met the people we thought we met. And, you know, it's, so even these, but these inconsistencies, so-called, show that these are real accounts. They didn't collaborate with one another. They wrote it down as they understood it, as they lived it, as they heard it, as the Spirit directed them to set it down. So these things started to convince people that maybe the accounts of Jesus' life really are true. And then there's... Um, the account of Papias. Papias is this guy who had contact with John. He was a, a Christian leader, had contact with John the Apostle near the end of his life. But he was also fascinated with the stories of Jesus. So he happened to meet, or made arrangements to meet, a lot of the disciples of the Apostles. So he'd meet some guy and say, oh, you were in, you were in Peter's small group? Please tell me everything he taught you about Jesus. And he'd meet, he meets up, you were in, oh, you were in Matthew's uh, group? Too? And he would just learn everything that he could and write it down. So it's clear that the story of Jesus was not made up. It was consistent. All of his followers told the same story, and all of those who followed them understood it and wrote it down too. So it appears that the first point of evidence doesn't really work out. There are first-person accounts. They're good ones. There are other also ancient sources. This is also helpful for the apologists to know. Josephus was a Jewish historian from the first century. So he had no, he wasn't a Christian. He had no reason to make this up. But he said in one of his books, he talks about a time when the high priest Ananias convened a meeting of the Sanhedrin and brought before them a man named Jesus, who was the brother, I'm sorry, James, who was the brother of Jesus, who was called the Christ and certain others. So here he talks about Christ and the brother James, in this same situation, he has no reason to talk about Jesus except that it was true. Tacitus was a Roman historian. He was also a Roman senator, so he was well-connected in the hierarchy of Rome. And he wrote this down. Nero fastened the guilt of some of the problems in the empire and inflicted the most exquisite tortures on a class hated for their abominations, 
which apparently was we worshipped. And they were called Christians by the populace. Christus, from whom the name of the group had its origin, suffered the extreme penalty during the reign of Tiberius at the hands of one of our procurators, Pontius Pilate. So Tiberius, writing around the year 115, talks about this, and he's, he's, a, he's a factual guy. He checks things out. He footnotes. He's good. Had, was not a Christian, had no reason to pump up the Christian faith. In fact, he's explaining why Christians of his day were being persecuted, or Nero's day at least. And he gives affirmation. So all these things start to build up. So was Jesus really a person? Did he really live? Did he really do the things that the Bible says he did? The evidence is yes, that's true. There really was a Jesus. Now, that's point A. Point B is, did he really die? Was there a point where he was really dead? Peter, let's weigh him in because he obviously believes he did. This man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to a cross. Jesus uh, dead? Yes, Peter was convinced that he was. And remember his story, too. He had denied Jesus in the courtyard outside the trials and went away weeping bitterly. If, if there was anybody who had a reason to hope that Jesus was still alive, it was Peter. And he's just disconsolate when he realizes that Jesus is dead. All of the writers of the New Testament, in fact, attest to the cruel, degrading, and humiliating murder of their leader. And they, it was just, this was just an awful thing. What a way for all of this to end. Now, here's some suggestions came along. Okay, Jesus was really crucified, but maybe they were wrong about him actually dying. Isn't it possible that he just passed out on the cross from the torture and later revived in the coolness of the tomb and then got out and was still in hiding, licking his wounds, when everybody just thought he was dead. That's possible, isn't it? Well, if you don't think so, you, you're disagreeing with a lot of scholars of the early 20th century who said, yeah, that it was a, that's... But when we say that, we have to remember then that that means that he survived the brutal and excruciating experience of being flogged, nailed to a cross, asphyxiation, which is how you die if you're on a cross, and spearing. So if he endured all of that and was still able to get up in that cool tomb and roll back this enormous stone to walk away, then yeah, I guess it's possible. But rather than hear from me, let's hear from uh, Dr. Alexander Metherell. This is a clip from the movie, The Case for Christ, in which this Christian apologist has an opportunity to share with Lee Strobel some of the realities of crucifixion. So those are some experts talking about what really happened on the cross. He mentions asphyxiation because what happens is you're, when you're hanging like this, nailed here and here, and your feet are nailed, uh, you're, you can't inhale. You're in the exhale position. So to inhale, you have to somehow push up to catch a breath and then collapse down again. The problem is to, to push up, you have to push up on your two feet that are nailed below you. And eventually, your muscles start to tense, and this fluid builds up around your heart and lungs. He talks about the pericardial effusion and pleural effusion. And this is, it's an awful, agonizing death. In fact, the word that we have, excruciating, in our vocabulary, means pain like that suffered in a crucifixion. That's what it means. 
It's, it's the worst kind of pain. The Romans were really good at making people suffer when they died. Jesus really died, no question about that. The third issue then that Strobel challenged and that Peter affirms is, was Jesus really alive again after he was dead? Peter, uh, here again, weighs in, yes, definitely. God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. So not only is he raised from the dead, but he's raised free of the, effect, of the awful effects of the crucifixion. So let's consider the evidence here. Two main points of issue. First of all, the tomb is empty. That seems like an obvious place to start. Uh, we have several in, our, in the cemetery there at Montgomery Baptist, there are several members of our family buried. And uh, I, I can assure you of that because we wander by every now and then just to visit those graves and they're still intact and I know there's still people there. It would be easy enough to check and find out if this were true. In fact, this is the, this is the way that we can be assured that the tomb was empty. Early on, there was a suggestion, well, these women, Mary and the other women, they, in their grief, they kind of wandered into the cemetery to look for the tomb, and they went to the wrong one. That's, that's why they were, they were just silly and foolish. I mean, you can't depend on women, right? That's what they thought back then. Women weren't reliable witnesses. So it would be, but it would be easy enough to check, wouldn't it? So John and Peter go, and they check it out, and they also find it's empty. You know, these men are smart enough to find the right tomb, right? So... <laughs> Not only that, but this was the tomb that was supplied by Joseph of Arimathea, who was a well-known member of the Jewish council. Probably a lot of people would know where his stuff was. It wasn't like it was some obscure place. Other people could have checked. That's called the Jerusalem factor. If we wanted to be sure the tomb was empty, it was easy enough to check it. How could the lie that Jesus was really risen flourish in the city of Jerusalem when anybody could wander over and check and see if the tomb was really empty? The other thing was uh, what they call the criteria of embarrassment. At least that's what Lee Strobel calls it. And that's this women issue. If you were going to start off with a story that Jesus was resurrected, it wouldn't be smart back then to suggest that the first people who noticed that the tomb was empty were women. Because women were not reliable. They were seen to be silly. You, you just leave them at home. They can't really be taken seriously. So to start off with the story that the women found it empty would probably not be a smart place to start back then. Also, there's the enemy at the station. That is to say, the enemies of Jesus also confirmed the tomb was empty. The religious leaders checked it out. Yes, it was empty. The Roman authorities checked it out. Yes, it was empty. They knew where the tomb was. What they did is, early on, they made up a story. This is kind of a convenient one. The story was the disciples came in the night and stole the body. Now, this is kind of a, a tough one because, uh, is it possible? Yeah, I guess it's possible, but... The disciples didn't believe that Jesus was alive. They knew he was dead, and they thought that was the end of it. Even though he told them he was going to be resurrected, there's no evidence at all that anybody remembered that or took that seriously, was waiting at the tomb. Then they'd have to get there and overpower armed guards to get access to the tomb and roll away a big stone and drag the body away. So, and, and the authorities had all the power of Rome at their hand to search for the body if they thought there really was a missing body. None of that happened because the story was just not true. It was like when Billy walks into sixth grade and says, the dog ate my homework. We don't really know what happened to Billy's homework. What we do know is he doesn't have it today. So there was no body. 
So how did the tomb get empty? But there's more. Not only was the tomb empty, but Jesus' um, followers began to encounter him. First Mary in the garden, then others. In fact, Paul gives a little summary of that, but even Peter in his sermon says that. In verse 32 of Acts 2, he says, God certainly raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of that fact. We're witnesses. We saw him. Paul goes over the whole list of things. I received this word that I'm now passing on to you. Jesus died for our sins, according to the scripture, was buried, and the third day he rose again, and he appeared to Peter. He also appeared to the 12. After that, more than 500 at one time. So he goes on listing all the different people. John says the same thing. That which our eyes have seen, which our hands have handled, that's what we're declaring to you. We know and we have experienced the truth. All of his followers believed that he was alive. Now, Clement was not one of his followers, neither was Polycarp, but they were disciples of the apostles. Clement's mentor was Peter, and he was convinced in the resurrection. He said, that's the first thing Peter started teaching me. Peter was willing to die for the belief in the resurrection. Polycarp said the same thing about his teacher, John. So now we've got to step back a minute and say, if this is really true, or maybe we should say since this is really true, Jesus really did live and really was the teacher and savior the New Testament claims for him to be. If he really did die that awful death on the cross, and if he was really resurrected, then think about the implications of that for us as we go into Easter season. Jesus really was who he claims to be. His teachings have authority in my life and your life, even to this day, because he's the Lord. And here's the other thing. It means that he was a volunteer, not a victim. He was not a victim in all this. He was a volunteer. He went to the cross willingly. But why would he do that? Why would he go to the cross willingly? Why would he endure all of that if he didn't have to? Peter, uh, years later, in his letter, 1 Peter, kind of thinks some of that through and shares with us this insight. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, into an inheritance that never perishes, spoils, or fades, kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. And though you have not seen him, Peter had seen him, but the people to whom he's talking did not see Jesus in his earthly life. But even though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. This is why Jesus went to the cross, because in his death, we have new birth. Because of his pain and shame on the cross, our experience can be joy and sins forgiven. His humiliation gave way to living hope for us. And his sacrifice makes possible our salvation. 
That's why he went to the cross. The facts seem indisputable to me. Now, here, let me just say this. For Lee Strobel, he felt it necessary to prove this for himself before he could believe. His wife, Leslie, believed and then searched. That's how it was with me. When I started confronting these facts, I realized that I really trusted in Christ. I really felt that I had a personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ through his spirit. But it helped me to go back and reassure myself that my faith was reasonable. But these are the realities. With all this being true, these are the realities, who he is and what he's done for me. I have new birth in him. I can have joy, inexpressible joy, he says. I have a living hope because he suffered humiliation. I have salvation because he voluntarily allowed himself to become a sacrifice. As we approach Easter time, Pastor Mike's going to be here next week sharing with us what it means to make all of this personal. How do we embrace the truth of Christ? Wouldn't it be great if you brought somebody with you who needed to hear that message? And, and you don't have to be afraid to invite them. And, and you can be confident that your faith is reasonable and that your relationship with Christ is real because he really did live. He really did die for you. He really was raised from the tomb in glorious victory. It's a great miracle, but it changed my life and yours. It changes the prospect of life forever with him. It opens up the doors to heaven for us. Who believe We have an inheritance in heaven because of Christ. I don't know what kind of inheritance you have here on the earth, what kind of stuff, what, what legacy of inheritance you'll pass on to somebody else, but Jesus has this inheritance that we embrace, that we have a place in heaven because he died and was raised again. If you've never trusted in that message, maybe it was an intellectual issue, maybe it was just you didn't make the connection between head and heart, Pastor Mike went over this last week, the reasons we don't believe, because we don't understand what to believe or why we should believe, or sometimes we, we, we get it, but we never connect head and heart and put our trust and personal faith in the one who died for us. If that's the case for you, you need to deal with that today and trust him as Savior, as the Spirit moves in your head and your heart to bring you to faith in him. And then invite a friend to come back next week as we celebrate the glorious resurrection, and your friend, your loved one, has the opportunity to hear how they can embrace the truth of Christ for themselves. Next week, embracing the truth. May I pray with you? Lord, I thank you for what you have accomplished for us in Christ. Thank you that because of his sacrifice, um, I can experience salvation. I know the joy of sins forgiven because you bore my uh, sin on the cross and endured the pain and shame of it all. Thank you, Lord, that we have living hope and a new birth because Jesus died and was rose again. And Lord, for those here gathered this morning who have yet to make, maybe really hadn't thought about it that much and this kind of stimulates their thinking to realize that this is all true and what happened happened for them. Maybe they've heard this before and just missed that what's an intellectual ascent for them needs to be 
the cry of their heart. And they need to put, a, put faith personally in the one who died and rose again. Draw them by your spirit to yourself. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. Intro music by bensound.com. Visit us online at crossroads-cc.org.